Hey everybody, we at Podgave Rock and Roll Do You want to make it clear that we don't mean any offense by our comments, critiques, or opinions. We're not music critics, just buddies that use talking about music as an excuse to hang out. Also, our language is intended for adult ears. Enjoy! Cause I'm in the shit house Wish I played in a rock and roll band Somebody give me a dollar bill So I can pass out on the jukebox singing I don't know if this is a southern thing. I, I Just coming back from Mississippi, we eat a lot of nabs. Do y'all know what nabs are? Mm. No. So... So they're the little six pack of like cracker sandwiches that you buy at the, okay. at the gas station, yes. right? Hold on, you what mean do you that call those? Put together that you put together like a snackable? They're like two Ritz crackers and yeah, like two Ritz crackers and a, and a peanut butter. butter. No, yeah, but they're all they're in a oh, package. Like the, yeah, round or square? In a packet six. R- round or square? Either no, I was one. asking you, round or square? E- either one. Which ones are you eating? Well, so <laughs> we call them nabs. All of them. Across oh, because the board. they're all Nabisco products, I think. Okay. I've just always grown up. Nabs. My dad's just like, you want some nabs? And I'm like, sure. Huh. That's it. But then you have to specify which nab. nab. Which... Well, sometimes you'll be like cheese, peanut butter, whatever. Okay, that was but... I'm just trying to understand the parameters of the nab. So wh- the... Where, are you, where are you taking us with this? No, I was just curious if you guys also called it nabs. Because no, I've never known them as anything not. else. What do you call them then? Cheese Fucking and crackers, crackers. Or peanut butter crackers. <laughs> Like a pack of crackers, I don't like. I never had like a nickname for them. Do you ever eat them? I did in high school. I would. I don't, okay. I, I don't know if I've had them since. I'll tell you when I eat those. It's like if I'm doing some kind of like moving furniture, comes some kind of shit like that. Like you're just doing something. I walk into a store. I want a fucking coke and some fucking nabs, as you would call them. <laughs> nabs, stat. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it's a very convenient name for it's it. A, yeah. Instead of like, I mean, thinking, you're, you're like, because yeah, I don't I have time to say Nabisco. <laughs> <laughs> no time for that. Thinking back, I think my favorite ones were the wheat with the cheese. Like the wheat brown yeah. cracker, the orange, like the the neon orange Yeah, I like the round ones. Yeah. I like the toasted-y round it's ones. pretty good. The butter cracker kind of, or with this. Oh, oh yeah. That with some peanut with butter. One in the middle. Oh, I got peanut a story. That with the, I got that. a story for you. Probably my sophomore year of high school, maybe junior year, I went camping with some dudes, and we were leaving the campground. We were done, you know, and we were out of everything. We didn't have anything. No water, no nothing to drink, nothing to eat, except we had some, like, crackers, cheese pack, right? Uh, nabs, as you would call them. <laughs> um, yeah, nice. And, uh, I got high. I got real fucking high. And yeah. as George Surrogate says, when your mouth's getting dry, pretty high. And I made the mistake of eating peanut butter crackers with a dry mouth. Oh. So what happens oh. is my mouth is already the fucking Sahara Desert. And then it's like someone just runs a deodorant stick across the <laughs> sand. The worst part is... I started laughing about it, and when you laugh, you exhale air, then you inhale. And when I inhaled, I just <laughs> inhaled a ton of cook, like uh, cracker dust, which irritated my lungs immediately. <laughs> and then I just stopped and blew out just nab dust everywhere. <laughs> so don't ever, ever, ever smoke weed and eat some crackers. You're gonna, you're gonna want to, because you're gonna want, you're gonna have the munchies. But if there is but no water, water. there is do not. <laughs> it's, it was just fucking crazy, and I'm, it was just terrible. It's like my mouth was filled with so, deodorant or antiperspirant. So speaking of a, <laughs> oh, so I, I'm gonna make another drink here, and there's a drink I'll, I'll tell you guys about. Um, oh, and I'm, I'm sure you guys know have heard me tell about this drink. Cause I only drink it in the holidays. It's um, it's like a White Russian, but White Russian is vodka, Kahlua, and cream, right? Okay. They say if you use rum. It's a white Cuban because it's rum. And yeah. they say what the one I like to do is if you use whiskey, it's a white trash. Yes. yes. I've had one of those. And <laughs> so what, what do you, was it cream and whiskey? Cream and Kahlua and whiskey. But then uh, I, I, mm-hmm. I, up, huh. I up the ante. That is little, spicy. That's a spicy little beverage. I, I, I think I'm just going to start calling them a white tr- Christmas maybe. But. A white Christmas. <laughs> but I did, when, going with the white trash thing, I'm like, I've been adding cold brew coffee to it, and then I just call it a methed out Ooh. trucker. 
That sounds good. It's fucking great because <laughs> you don't get tired. Well, it cuts. It cuts. It's also rich too. It'll cut it all. It does. The coffee, Jesus. cream, glue, and liquor. Yeah. yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, you are listening to Pod Gave Rock and Roll to you. Merry New Year. And <laughs> and we are going to bring in 2021 with uh, Jonathan Horton pick, Man Who Sold the World, originally by David Bowie, and covered more famously by Nirvana on their Unplugged album. You know, it came out, I guess I was in high school, pretty early in high school, and I love the song. And it's probably one of the first times I realized the power of the songwriting and the songwriter over just the person who's playing it. Obviously not to in any way, shape or form diminish from Nirvana, but it's a great song. Loved the song, loved all the cool parts of it. But then like at the end, you know, he's like, Oh, that's a David Bowie song. I was like, really? And so then, you know, the next thing I did was went out and bought the Bowie album, the man who sold the world. And that type of progression from artist to other artists is something that the Grateful Dead did for me and the Stones and Zeppelin and a bunch of other folks were like, you're digging somebody, a song and then you're realizing, oh, this isn't their song. So beyond just loving the song, beyond even preferring their Nirvana version, it may be more important than any other song I dig or any other performance I dig in illustrating the inherent power of good songwriting. And that, that was kind of my point, too. It was just like such an incredible union of like art and performance, just from the song composition and the writing, the mysterious poetry from Bowie, Nirvana, like their significance at the time, them covering this song. It's just such an obscure Bowie cover at the time. I'm not sure how well known this song was at the time. I mean, by people who are into Bowie or rock would obviously know it but you know it kind of introduced Bowie to me as well and I, I think it's a great performance of the song just because as Kurt's singing it you know it, it almost feels like it was written for him or him to sing of course Bowie's is like equally haunting but for some reason this just feels right and it and it it's such like a prophetic song too just you know from what happened soon after you know just like Kurt being a man with the world at his fingertips and giving it all up, you know? I, th I always thought, when this is one of those songs that I think we mentioned before, like a song where you thought he said something else. I always thought this was the man who stole the world when I was younger. It's not as clear-cut as, say, All on the Watchtower. But I do prefer the Nirvana version over Bowie's. Their version kind of grounds the song more in reality. It's more interesting, and they kind of remove it from like the ether where Bowie basically left it. You know, you listen to his, it's very spacey. I'm, and I'm not a huge Nirvana guy, but their, their ability to interpret covers, especially in the Unplugged album, especially this song, is just one of the myriad ways in which you cannot deny their greatness. And this was, you know, a song that for me, I think this came out when I was 10 or 11. I do remember hearing and, and being like, wow, that's a great song. I don't think I understood the but like connected it to bowie and stuff like that i definitely didn't know this was a bowie song but you know to take a song that was basically an obscure tune a b-side of a, of a rock legend and make it and bring it back into the mainstream is just like an incredible feat all right quick question if you guys had to pick nirvana or pearl jam I, i'd rather listen to pearl jam most of pearl jam songs for sure yeah i'd probably say nirvana is more innovative but i definitely prefer pearl jam exactly <laughs> That's it's tough, man. I mean, I, I I can't say I can make a decision there. I mean, if I had to, I'd choose Nirvana. How much of either band have you listened? Which band have you listened to more in the last twenty years? Pearl Jam, because Eddie's still alive, <laughs> and they're still coming out with music and but, still but, relevant, and and that that's the reason I I haven't gone back to their their catalog much, but I've listened to a lot of their new stuff. He always seems to be playing with other artists and kind of he's always kind of in the not the spotlight, but just in, in the, you know, music. I feel like Pearl Jam, and maybe because they've had a longer career, but there's a broader spectrum of music. 
Whereas with Nirvana, I mean, it's definitely tied to being depressed and being of a certain ilk. Like whereas with Pearl Jam, I've heard enough where there's a broad spectrum from acoustic to electric to rocking out to introspective. So that probably ap- applies to me. I mean, appeals to me a little more. Just a little bit of devil's advocate, though. But out of the first three albums of both bands, I've listened to more Pearl Jam's first three albums than I have of Nirvana's in the last 20 years, regardless of whatever they've come out with in the last 20 years or 25 years, or since Kurt Cobain killed himself. Like I, I've listened to more of Pearl Jam's stuff from that time than Nirvana's. It's more something you can put on and hang out. Like You don't want to put on and listen to Heart Shaped Box, like drinking some beers with your friends. Like, no, yeah. probably not. Yeah, I mean, I just think Nirvana does something so much different from what Pearl Jam does like I can get from other artists. Like it's, it's very similar to, you know, a lot of the kind of classic rock from earlier times. You know, Nirvana was so unique. That's why I kind of, if I had to choose one that I could only listen to from here on out, it would be them. Pearl Jam actually just recently released their Unplugged, MTV Unplugged. And it is basically like their hits. One of the unique things about the Nirvana is on their Unplugged, there's, they, they decided really to eschew their hits and just play like some obscure covers of bands now jonathan why was this the song that kind of stuck out to you over say jesus uh don't want me for a sunbeam or lake of fire or um well i mean lead belly song right 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 well i mean it's it's clearly the best written song i mean it's a it is a david bowie song and that's there's a quality there that is not i mean the other songs are great and i dig them but I think I'm especially digging like Kurt Cobain's perf- Nirvana's performance of him. But this tune is like this is folks don't just write songs this good. Even yeah, yeah. Nirvana. I mean, I love Nirvana, but like they don't have this level of sophistication. And once again, this isn't even a famous Bowie song. This is just like yeah, some random ass Bowie song that is still better than anything short of like the Beatles or Pink Floyd or you know that kind of stuff. It's a great songwriting. Like you said, this is a random song, but you know, I did listen to the the album that this is owned. This was Bowie's third album in nineteen that he released in nineteen seventy, called "The Man Who Sold the World." This and Black Country Rock are by far the best two songs in that album. Although Ronson's just killing the guitar. Throughout. The width of a circle, man, is my favorite song. It's that cool. It's ridiculous. a little. It's eight minutes. It's too long, and there's. It's because know. you don't get into the fucking get, ripping guitar eight-minute instrumental. Like, it's a Do- bad Dog, Dogs is one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs, 12 minutes long. I, I love long songs. I, it doesn't do that for me. I, I think Black Country Rock and this song are the highlights. Now, the interesting thing for me about this song is that it wasn't, it was obscure. Like, but it was the name of the album. The Yavis yeah. knew this was the best song in the album, even though he wrote the lyric pretty much like the last day of recording they they had already recorded the whole like music and stuff and he just <laughs> went and wrote the lyric and put the vocal that's, down that's impressive <laughs> and it, it it's based on a poem by William Hughes Mearns called Antigonish Antigonish <laughs> Antigonish no gonish uh, but yeah like it, it basically like the poem starts with yesterday upon the stair i met a man who wasn't there he wasn't there again today how i wish he'd go away and my favorite thing about the song, it's hard for me to separate it, like after looking at it from a songwriting perspective, it's so interpretive and so visual to the point of, of, of like being cinematic. It really draw every line kind of draws you in to like a scene. Like you, you picture yourself where he is. You know, we passed upon the stair, we spoke and was and when. Yeah. Uh, although I wasn't there, he said I was his friend. I laughed and shook his hand and made my way back home. Like it, it everything just kind of like moves like a like a like a script almost and these are what i call rock and roll lyrics where they're cool i don't know that they mean a whole lot yeah but in the context of it's kind of like the lyrics of stairway to heaven or something right like they're not like um like they're cool they're but they're i don't know how insightful but they're just especially cool and they're fun and they're and they're mysterious enough to leave room for you to investigate and kind of contemplate and come up with what you want but you know i just love that like I said rock and roll these are rock and roll lyrics yeah. yeah and i think it's pretty profound i mean the man who sold the world is an amazing fucking line this song to me just how it's written i love it it really um speaks to like bowie's kind of just mythical songwriting it, it almost sounds like an ancient tale from like greek mythology or some shit and kind of as i was digging into it i realized that he's kind of talking about himself 
which makes perfect sense. But before looking into it, I always thought of it as some kind of like epic tragedy, like a a man who made the, a deal with the devil to like sell the whole world instead of like selling his soul. Like just such a tragic, who is this monster who sold the world? I think to its core, if you just read the lyrics, it, it it's him meeting a ghost. Now, whether the ghost is him or whether he's like talking to himself in some like existential way or his future self or whatever, like I prefer that it's about him, like you said, Neil, because like the doubt in the chorus when, you know, he switches from I to we with the I never lost control to we never lost control. Like he's definitely talking to himself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in some way. Yeah, like, you're face to face. With the man like, who sold the world. Like I don't necessarily know what that means, but. I mean, the ghost is clearly Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> I don't really think there's any question. About... I could see them having a cup of tea and like basically <laughs> I know that talking ghost about this. Is me. Yeah, I mean, once again, I don't know how the, how good these lyrics are without the music behind them, like a Dylan tune or like some other songs where I think they're just objectively good. I think these are super. I mean, let's be clear. In this context, I think they're fantastic. Just the idea of a thousand years. I mean, that that's like uh, whether it's Bowie or game of thrones or like whatever that's some like that's a significant that's almost as broad a scope of time as people can talk about intelligently because you know it's a millennia and so there's just something inherently mysterious and uh, very interesting about that the song jonathan is actually referring to here is cat people putting out fire by david bowie which starts see these eyes so green i can stare for a thousand years released in 1982 on the album Cat People. I, I do love kind of the self-doubt angle because I, I do think when you, when you what you said earlier about Nirvana bringing out like how great the songwriting is in this, like lyrically, they're like, because the way, and we'll talk about production later, the way Bowie's singing this is just, it's so removed and spacey and, and, and whatever and kind of haunting and whatever. And Nirvana just kind of, it's almost hypnotic. It, it's almost like you're going within yourself and you're in this place within yourself, like it, it almost, I'm not gonna, yes, I'm gonna say it. You almost like it's a dreamscape that that you're walking through or floating through or whatever. It's almost written like an MC Escher drawing. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I, yes, it's not like Dylan or it's not telling a super specific story or it's not like, I, I just think it's so visual like Josh brought up. As I was reading the lyrics and listening to it, I've never really kind of just listened to the whole thing, but it's just right along with a lot of David Bowie's stuff from this time. It's just like, I don't know what he was tapping into, where he came up with this shit, but it's just so, for lack of a better word, it's just such a, he has such like a fairy tale kind of like vibe to it. It's well, cool. well this, this, this was a B-side to Space Odyssey. And if you listen to the Bowie version, it, it sounds like it's just a sequel to Space Odyssey. Space Odyssey, like it still has Audit, the same Space Odyssey. Space Odyssey. Uh, <laughs> it, it feels like it's it's an extension of Space Odyssey, and so I, I almost feel like this is Bowie. Not to get into the music yet, but this is Bowie like exploring early Bowie exploring what he's about to become. Like he's not yet this like an androgynous alien. He's just exploring like quirky ideas and like unique songwriting stuff and, and he's got the guitar player and the drummer that are going to be spiders from mars it's got a feeling of like pre ziggy stardust like mm-hmm. he, he's he's starting to venture out into space he's not there yet yeah and <laughs> so what it does though here's my thing when i say rock and roll lyrics what i mean is the music and the vibe is good enough to where you're going to assign meaning to the words like you know like dig whether there is any there or not you know like like for example on the big lebowski there's that kenny rogers song i just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in <laughs> okay like the lyrics i woke up this morning with the sundown shining in i found my mind in a brown paper bag within i tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high i tore my mind on a jagged sky i just mm-hmm. dropped in to see i mean th- I think these Bowie lyrics are about on par with this Kenny Rogers thing. But, but, no, but his, I don't. I... But I'm just saying that like his, it's there are such vibe and mis, mis, uh, mystery, mystery, and not mysterious. There's such mystery in the music that the words just kind of write on top and give you, like you said, Neil, imagery without any specifics. They're open to interpretation, which is fine. Yeah. And I, I think you're right there. I mean, I think the Kenny Rogers is a little more tongue in cheek, a little more word salad than this is. 
But, and without the chorus, without the man who sold, it just really ties it together. It kind of just makes it so profound and epic. Like, like with without that, yes, this would just be a bunch of imagery and word salad. It would be word salad, but I agree with you, Neil, that, you know, who knows? Not me. Like, but I never lost control. That's a contradiction right there. And then you're face to face with the, who is the man who sold the world? Like, the, you know. Well, more importantly, who do you sell? Who do you sell it to? I mean, I was gonna say it's kind of gibberishness, honestly, but it's contemplative well, because it's cool. It's yes, I, I agree with that. I mean, like, I I feel like I probably found these lyrics more cool when I was twenty three than I do now. They're definitely for a a younger like exploring what's going on, you know. Whereas at a certain point, you just get to I'm not gonna know, and, and you know he wasn't there yet. But this is exploring some of those ideas. He doesn't know, like he, I never lost control, but you did or. You yeah, know. I just I just think this is too literal. I think this is just somebody having fun, like making finger painting art. It's just you know just having. I don't you know I don't think there has to be a, a bigger picture. I think the aesthetics themselves, the funness, the coolness, and it feels like a dream. Well, it feels like mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. there's yes. direction, but it's vague and ill defined. And he's kind of running through a bunch of contradictory things, which I think is indicative of that area era because it's very easy to sound deep by just saying things that sound but, inherently contradictory. But that also goes back to that self-doubt. Like I don't I'm I don't, not confident maybe. in what I'm saying or I doing. Don't, or, I don't I think it's a device. I, I, think you can, I don't I don't think this is that for me. I just think this is a device that they used to sound deeper than you really that's I'm not saying deeper than you that's are, fair. but it's just fun. It's just, you know, yeah, I, I think I I do think the lyrics hold a lot of weight. Just like I thought you died a long, long time ago, and then he he, he returns to that. It's just it just seems so um, consequential. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I do think that's a function of the music. When also we're talking about like the the like guy in rock who just reinvented himself at the beginning of his career here, writing songs. So like, there's a lot of that stuff you can pick and choose out of there. Like Jonathan, I get what you're saying of like. It may just be a bunch of gibberish, but I do think there's little nuggets you can you can find there. That's this is a guy, this is a master of self uh, of reinvention, kind of exploring that. Well, the thing is, and let's be clear, I don't mean like total gibberish. The music is so good; it's like dig a pony. When John Lennon sings it, like you swear it means something. I don't know if it means anything or not, but with the, it shows you the power of melody. But also, too, he was a big theater guy, and he was yeah. a big. He recognized the power of art and like kabuki theater and all this stuff where it's all about just like what you're seeing and i think that's what's going on here and like i said that's not in any way shape or form because i'd rather hear someone be playfully ambiguously deep than someone being so self-importantly deep and being a fucking bonehead like that that which is what a lot of songwriting is where at least i think he's he's kind of taking the piss a bit as they would say in england it's just you know it's just, he's just kind of going with it and and but to to your credit I mean, to your point, the music is so good, it absolutely adds a gravitas to it. It adds emotion to it, no doubt. Before we move on to the music, which is where we're going, uh, Neil, what's your favorite line? I mean, I think it's of, we spoke of was and when, because it's just, it's, I mean, it's kind of word salad but it's just so creative. It's very cool, yeah. Jonathan? I think, honestly, I think that I laughed and shook his hand because because of the imagery that that mixes the practical and the pragmatic with the mystery of it all where it's like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're having this crazy conversation you're like yeah whatever man i'm out of here like this is you know and so i think that that presents some sort of texture and almost juxtaposition of kind of that i guess fourth wall or whatever as you mentioned the other you know a couple weeks ago neil where it's like oh Right, it's like you're, he's aware he's in this very peculiar, strange situation, mm-hmm. but yet that doesn't quite give him insight into what in the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it, I, so that that lyric kind of itself, in context of the, of the of the broader picture, I think is very cool. I was I was gonna say that as well because I love just what follows it and made my way back home. I searched a foreign land. I mean, you're basically like in three different locales in three very short pieces mm-hmm. uh, not even sentence sentences for years and years i roamed and th- that part is just is so cool because it, it it does it, it brings back that the the poem it's based on about a ghost you know meeting mm-hmm. a ghost but also still kind of adheres to yeah. the ghost the ghost could be you well or a and part to the of ghost yourself. yeah the end of that verse i must have died alone <laughs> 
Yeah, I must have died alone a long, long time ago. You know, I've been roaming a <laughs> foreign land. You see what land. I'm saying? How the device here is just saying things that are contrary and don't yes. make sense within the con. And that's kind of how a dream is. Yeah, it's, it's very dreamscape. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's, but, a, but, it's a dreamscape, guys. But, but I do you. feel like Thank the you. device is saying things that are diametrically opposed to each other. To, to get into the rest of the, the song, right? the melody to me is nothing special. There's nothing that really goes up and down. I mean, it's pretty drone-like uh, to sing. It's fun to sing. It's really fun to grab an acoustic guitar and sing this. The chord structure is in the key of F with an A major chord borrowed from the D minor scale. <laughs> Yeah, Josh, that's real cute and all, but <laughs> the most important part of the song is the riff because that's the yes. thing that starts it, that's the thing that carries it, and that is the sense of impending, like, eternity, endlessness mm -hmm. that keeps, that helps define, gives the song some body. Uh, 15 year subscriber but uh, this week they, they always do this thing where they have like a little like what what I've learned from Esquire where they just ask really short questions to artists and this week was Keith Richards and then the last question they asked him was you know what how do you write such great riffs and he was just like well you don't have an answer I don't have an answer for that he's just like riffs don't should be something that don't exist do, if you have a, an art or something you just do it all the time and then one minute it's not there and then the next minute it's there and it, this is one of those riffs that it is so and, and i would i will say the nirvana song i prefer because of it also dominates the bowie song but it's just so nice with like pat smear and pat smear not pat, pat smear, smear. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, he's playing acoustic <laughs> guitar and then chris novoselic is playing the bass and they're just like on top of each other and it's so pronounced in the unplugged version okay i don't know that the I don't know that this or really any chord progression or very few are ex or inherently much of anything. But here's what I'll say Bowie does in this tune. I, I think it sounds like he does because he does it in Space Out. He does it in a lot of songs. But he uses chords that are in two different keys to, to move between keys. And what happens when you do that, your tonal center isn't steady. And that gives you a sense of unsettled lack of resolution and i think that's kind of what carries throughout the song that sense of like falling and never stopping and that's what happens when you're alternating between keys because you never resolve anything and that this song feels unresolved it feels like eternity and so i mean i think that's part of what's going on in there and just as important as the riff is that bass line right before the chorus that does feel like just an eternal like bum 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 the baseline and the riff are all are very circular i mean like you said neil they're just like repeating and repeating and bringing you back into you know like we said with with the lyric it's just like you're bringing you back into a scene and one of the most effective things about the song, especially in the Bowie version, musically, is how before he goes into, like, say, Jonathan, the I laughed and shook his hand. It's with a man who sold the world stop, you know, and then it just kind of brings you back into this place. It, it's hypnotizing. The reason I like the Nirvana version better is because that riff is not as it, it's more like haunting than hypnotizing in the Bowie version and then in the Nirvana version kind of it's almost like watching the squiggly lines go around in a circle and then you just back into like I laughed and shook his hand I think I like the Nirvana version better because it shows that the for lack of a better term the weirdness of the song is baked into the melody and the lyrics and the the riff and the way the chords change more than it is the production and it makes sense that when its song came out like bowie would be getting experimental in the studio but with nirvana it's like it's almost rustic like it's very it, it, it's very guys sitting around it's like garage rock but then it really lets you see without any clutter whatsoever the interesting composition that bowie is put together that's it really demonstrates the song without any, without any interruption yeah nirvana's version is 
amazing. It's it's such a cool just moment in rock history. But I think as far as um, listening to it, I prefer Bowie's version. Earlier in the day, I was kind of listening to him, um, and I was in that camp. I was like, yeah, Nirvana's is better. And then I'd say an hour ago, I re-listened to Bowie's. I was like, nah, never mind. Bowie's is better. Because it's so spacey and kind of the way he, the production of it, the way he layers everything. I think the, the riff is very prominent in his version as well. It's not quite as right in your face, but just in the, in the way it drifts away for like, you know, half the song is just the end with him moaning and guys just like, what? you know, kind of what Kurt is doing with the, his guitar solo. He's mimicking Bowie's kind of moans at the end of the song. And I think if you guys go back and listen to the Bowie version again, you might kind of hear what I'm talking about. My only issue with the Bowie version really is I don't like the sound of the vocals. I don't know if it's like just duplicated or there's a bunch of, but he loses, like the production on the vocals to me is distracting and that's, I end up just hearing that more than anything. They're duplicated in parts in the Bowie right. version and they're heavily phased. So like, I, I, I think, again, like I, I know I'm just focusing on the fact that I think the Bowie version is very haunting, which if you read anything, it says that as well. But when you listen to it, it, it is like, it's like one of those like 70s videos that you would see. It's full of dissolved cuts where it's just like now he's in a desert and he's just walking a lot and it just dissolves to him in another place and him in another place. And I, I think that the Nirvana version to me, I, I, I like the musical break slash outro better in the Nirvana. I like what Kurt's, Kurt's doing on the his guitar better than the production of the Bowie version. I think that is a better vibe. first listened to it when Jonathan said I want to focus on the Nirvana version I listen to both every day and probably at the beginning of the week I was like oh, I think I like the Bowie version better but then quickly it was oh no the Nirvana version is better and I think it's because anybody can sing this song it does not require any range to sing this song Bowie's vocal is very produced Kirk's is very Kirk, I think the lack of production, like Jonathan said in the beginning, draws out the songwriting. How good the song, how cool and like creative the song is, better than the Bowie version. The Bowie version is like, there's just a lot of stuff going on that doesn't need to be there. And I think Nirvana kind of shows that. Nirvana's is more important, just for my money. I I, I really like what what's going on with the Bowie version. Yeah, and I mean, and I don't see it as a better or worse or anything like that. It's just, yeah. I think, yeah, I just think the Bowie's version feels a little more dated because you can tell he's experimenting. You mm -hmm. know, you can tell he's throwing everything at it because that was the point where there was all this new stuff and let's let's throw it all out there at this point you know 20 25 years after it came out it's like okay we've been through all that stuff we we have these studios where you can do every single thing in the world now let's get back to the basics of what makes music especially coming out of the 80s that wasn't why nirvana was so significant because they stripped everything back down and like and this is just right in line with their ethos of you know, art, and it's almost like found art, right? Where they're just making something out of what they have. To speak what you were talking about, Josh, the the guitar, Kurt's acoustic guitar that's all Frankensteined up with all that electric gear is so freaking sweet. And I, I do love the tone of that guitar in that song specifically. Like, even when he's playing that simple solo at the end, the way it kind of almost feeds back, it's like the one note, like... It's uh, it's it's a really nice interpretation, and it just speaks to like a lot of Bowie's stuff. Like you can just play like one or two notes, and it just sounds so spacey and surreal. You know, you don't have to get crazy with a bunch of licks or anything. It's just it's cool because I never really thought about it, but it sounds like a theremin, or it has the feel or the placement mm -hmm. of a therapy, theremin, which kind of gives that sci-fi kind of out there and it's and so like it ends up does kind of creates a, a juxtaposition of space i think there's a lot of dimensions going on well the the, the the bowie version sounds like it has a washboard like in the beginning that no that's uh what is that it's a that little like um one of those like south american like yeah 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 which is unnecessary i mean it's kind of cool but it's unnecessary i mean this is another one of those songs where like the outro i could do without like i think the nirvana version is better but like eh 
neither one of them are doing much for me. It's just kind of like getting spacey or. You don't like that. I, I don't care. I mean, like it's like I'm a couple like, bars. Ooh, I can't really... wait for this thing to come on, like the outro to come on. Josh is like, if there ain't no singing, you could count me out. <laughs> well, but Bowie is moaning basically in his. I didn't say moaning. I said singing. But that's still vocals. I mean, like I'm just saying, it's not that it's not as interesting as the rest of the song to me. Yeah, it's one of my favorite parts. But but the part that like this, this song is dominated musically by there's two really cool parts. You know, it's the and then the and then that that bass line that just keeps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that going. bass line is is cool because how cool how cool the chord change is there. I mean, yes. I think the bass it's definitely it definitely cool in and of itself that they bring it forward. That I think that works pretty well. They're just kind of accentuating what's happening, and the drums are just hanging out and doing what they need to do. And you know, this song is is lyric and that riff and that bass line. That those are the three important parts of the song. Back to what you were saying before, the melody's not too crazy. It doesn't it it doesn't move a lot. It's not tough to sing. But just back to why it's such a well written song. The the lyrics are so kind of epic and you know consequential like it like just as far as the singing goes like it wouldn't be that interesting if the lyrics weren't so great i wouldn't say that the lyrics are necessarily consequential though i can see them being that way i, I would almost say as, as i know jonathan you described certain songs in past episodes is like this, this song is more of a vibe and i i don't really know what it's about but the the, the vibe is, is very like i'm very curious about the vibe and and i i i, I don't mind being in either of these versions. Two things. The melody in, in and of itself is peculiar because the way it follows the chords and the chords, I don't think, adhere to a particular key. And so that's kind of strange. Like, it's not... They're tied directly to the chords. And the thing is, I had a realization a while back. I was looking at a, one of my fiancé's art book. There's a, a sculptor named Lee Bontecu who was... She's still alive, but she was really big in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And looking at her stuff, I just kind of realized, so the point of art, at least for me, is to create something that hasn't been seen or at least expresses you in a way that other folks who do or do not know you find interesting, good, bad, whatever. Like, they don't have to like it, but it it elicits a response, and it's very hard to do that, and the thing is, with this song, it elicits the idea in really, in a visceral way of mystery, of exploration, of, you know, and, and that's a reoccurring th- uh, thing with Bowie, with Space Oddity, and, and it makes sense for that age. It's the first time that mankind has been able to explore off the planet and go further. And then this is like yeah. the, the same and the opposite in the sense that it's going inward, kind of to infinity i think and I, and I love that that so when you can't have a song that is very clear while at the same time bringing you into that experience yeah and just to piggyback on what you're saying there i think the one of the reasons it is so important is because just the nature of the song is very tragic and what happened to kurt was tragic and you know just i must have died a long time ago man who sold the world it the, the, it's just very weighty the whole song i look at it more as outside of like whatever happened to him and the band of and and going to the whole album of their ability to pick really good songs with really solid songwriting and then interpreting them in a way that is very memorable and Mm -hmm. lives on and in in this case and i'm sure in the other cases i'm talking about also are the versions of the song that people know yeah yeah, I mean, Bowie, actually, at one point, he I, I saw somewhere he quoted that he was bemoaning like some kids coming up to him after a show, being like, oh my god, you played a Nirvana song. <laughs> it's like, what? Well, there's a, uh, a funny story I'd seen where, I don't think it was Ramblin' Jack Elliott, but it was one of those dudes back in the folk scene in New York with Dylan, mm-hmm. and he would play House of the Rising Sun, and then Dylan heard him play it, and Dylan started playing it. And so then whenever he would play it, Folks would be like, why are you playing this Dylan song? And he's like, it's not a Dylan song. It's just that old song that we both played. And then the animals recorded it. And that he ran into Dylan a while later. And Dylan's like, every time I play House of the Rising Sun, everybody's like, why are you playing the animal song? And so, you know, that's just like, 
welcome to the hard life of rock and roll stardom, Kurt Cobain. But the thing about it is it turned me on because I was already into Bowie to some extent. But that second song on the album, that again, that Width of a Circle, which is heavy. It's almost like Sabbathy or, or, or Zeppelin-ish. That's the first song on the album. Is that the first one? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, then, then that one. It just it really opened my eyes to the spectrum. Because in my mind, Bowie was like fame and Let's mm-hmm. Dance. And I didn't know that early, like, rock China side. Girl. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that really turned me on to how gritty he was back in the day and how, like, really cool his, his stuff was. All right. This week, we want to give a shout out to our friends from the band Bad Business who have their own podcast called Imbibe the Vibe. Check it out. Hey, all you pod gave rock and roll to you fans. This is Alex and Jackson from the Imbibe the Vibe podcast. Have you ever wondered, what should I drink while enjoying a fine piece of music? We did, and we made a show about it. We take really fancy cocktails and mix them with cool tunes. And we also teach you how to mix those fancy drinks so you can do them at home. Check us out wherever your pods are served. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and remember, like we say, have fun have out fun there. Out there. Now we're getting to production, which Tony, Vis- Tony Visconti uh, produced the Bowie version. I don't really even know if you have a producer for the Nirvana version. Because well... No. And and again, I think I like the Nirvana version better because there's less production. And it is just more stripped down to the bare, yeah, like, to the song. I totally get what you're saying. I, I just think as a piece of art, I kind of, I, I really like, I, I tend to like recorded versions better of stuff anyway. The performance was mesmerizing. The whole, the whole production of the whole scene of, like, Unplugged was just unbelievable. It's actually... It's tough because did you listen to this song or did you watch the YouTube of it? Because it's different listening to it and then watching him perform it. Because I would rather watch him perform this than, but if I'm going to just hit play on Spotify, I want to hear Bowie. If I'm going to ah. watch it, I'll watch Unplugged. You know yeah, I mean? didn't watch it. I don't think I've ever watched it. Really? I, 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 I watched never it. avoid it. I just, I just have it on the, re- I just like hitting, I just like listen to it. The only way I listened to it, um, kind of leading up to this, was watching it on YouTube. Because I, th- I felt like it was so important to kind of have that context, the visuals of that performance. Just it was like black candles and like stargazer lilies and like just the way the whole thing was decorated. It was and his like I said, his guitar. Speaking of just production, the way they produced that crazy. I want one of those acoustic guitars with all the knobs and pickups and <laughs> pedals. Well, he, he ran he ran his acoustic guitar through a fuzz box that he could trigger with a pedal and that's mm-hmm. how he into, into his twin reverb yeah. when he wanted it to sound electric mm-hmm. maybe one reason why I'd, i'm not avoiding the video or anything but i i don't have you guys ever like really dug some live version of some song and seen the footage and the footage was kind of underwhelming and it just kind of was like this doesn't look as cool as it sounds to me i, I, I feel like know. i've had do that you, happen do you have an example well, i think mainly a offhand is like I have some of those like rock and roll some of the early rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremonies with like John Fogarty and where the the bands it's like cause on that on that live uh, rock and roll hall of fame thing uh, it's actually the concert for rock and roll hall of fame I don't think it was an induction ceremony but it was just like maybe when it opened it's uh, John Fogarty but the the backing band is Booker T and the MGs and it is so good but when I watch it it's all like super corporate lit douchiness and so i've kind mm-hmm. of but that's the rock and roll hall of fame right but if i'm loving something i'll just i i, I i'll i'll leave it alone because i'm afraid i'm gonna watch it and be like oh that's kind of not as cool as it was before yeah i feel like i often have the opposite reaction where i'll see the ver- like a live version of the song and just the setting makes it so much cooler you know what i mean well in a sense we're kind of floating into under the influence of like what this sounds like um, what this influenced, uh, what this was influenced by. I would say for me, the Nirvana version reminds me of a Neil Young song called "The Loner." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you know that, I don't know why. Maybe it's well, kind of the that. unplugged version. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't do the loner oh, on the unplugged oh. version, which okay. I, I yeah, think yeah. the Neil Young unplugged. I'll go ahead and say is is my favorite unplugged. It's I, I like it more than the Nirvana one. I would say this is my Nirvana is probably my second favorite unplugged. 
but the loner i, I don't know just it, it's like a more well, doesn't abstract. it come in with a rip doesn't doesn't he say the loner and then it comes in with a similar riff kind of yeah it just has a lot of the same vibe yeah the riff is very similar but it, it, this is like a more abstract version of the the neil young song and obviously the neil young unplugged album and as i said earlier space oddity this is basically the same vibe for the bowie song that he was it's kind of extension of space oddity i mean i don't have much to say on this just because kind of the answer's right there i mean this is the biggest band of the 90s doing one of the greatest rock stars of all time it, and like the influence like there's so much you could say about nirvana and david bowie but this is just such a cool microcosm of under the influence itself it's funny josh you mentioned uh that Neil Young unplugged because for me this makes me think of Pocahontas with the mm. with the lyrically where it's abstract but still aesthetically pleasing it's still gorgeous you know it's but it's kind of ill-defined kind of like you know I mean there's no way you can mention Hollywood Pocahontas and Marlon Brando in any order it's pretty cool like you can't really screw that up and so that's what's but I love like that the quality of the the words even more than the phrasing i think is really cool it's the 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 themes they present in both in in this song and in the not that there's really influential but they, they just kind of remind me of each other it's influenced by other songs before it that had just very memorable riffs like i can't get no satisfaction or you know name your hendrix tune or kinks mm-hmm. tune that just started off with this epic riff i think those songs though are riff driven and i don't think this song was written riff first i feel like that, i feel like this I, actually i'm gonna i'm gonna not call it a riff i'm gonna call it a refrain i think that's a i feel like it's more of a because i don't think it carries the song i think lucy in the sky with diamonds is more of a kind of direct correlation to a song huh. like this because of the nature of the song and what it's about and how it's like i feel like this song is more of a that song than it would be for me than a a riff based song Sure. So, so talking about the riff as we move under the covers, which we already are. We've been under the covers this whole time, and, and nobody knew. But <laughs> we're recording this podcast from under the covers. I'd, I'd never get out of bed, just so we're clear. The covers of the song aren't they, – they basically don't have the riff in it, and they, they're not worth listening to because of that. Like This song was a B-side that hit number three on the U.K. charts in a cover by Lulu. The riff is not in the song, and yeah. I don't want to listen to but, it. But um, Bowie worked on that with her. Bowie helped produce that whole thing. Yes. I thought it was really cool. I mean, she plays with the melody. and, and it, it like definitely. It. I, don't, I don't think it's great. I'm not going to listen to it again. But um, I, I thought it was <laughs> noteworthy. I, I, I didn't hear the, the Lulu you know, version. But what's cool with this is basically is you just have a bunch of dudes who can play pretty well, like just playing a great song and just staying out of the way of it, really. you know. Yeah. I also heard a version of uh, Michael Stipe doing it on piano, which was pretty nice. Oh, I can see that. Exactly. Cool. The cool part of it was him playing it on piano and doing that, the bass line, that dun, 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 like while he's, it was just solo too, just him and the piano. It's cool. That's nice. There was another one by a guy named Midge Yuri. Again, same thing. It didn't, in 1982, didn't have the riff or, so I, I'm out. And then there was a David Bowie, Brian Eno version, like a remix that they both did which was basically just like house music and no again no thanks in saying that jonathan how does the shoe fit very dreamily i would say it's very uh it's like you're lacing up sweet pair of oblivion (laughs) (laughs) neil um i'd say depends on which version you're listening to it's either a, a moon boot or a old pair of black converse respectively <laughs> i actually I actually said like a like a beat up pair of converse you don't want to stop wearing and they just get better with age uh and this song got better with age so i love you like converse converse oblivion <laughs> you have two Con- converse and one oblivion converse oblivion. Uh, um. <laughs> it's a pair of shoes it's not even a pair of shoes you just pay money and you get nothing and on that note jonathan horton's about to play you a version of this song the Man Who Sold the World by David Bowie or Nirvana, whichever you want to listen to. Or Lulu. Or Lulu. Lulu. 
passed up on the stairs We spoke of was and when Although I wasn't there He said he was my friend Which came as a surprise I spoke into his eyes Thanks for listening to Pod Gave Rock and Roll to You. Please subscribe and rate on Apple and Spotify. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram under the handle at Pod Gave Rock. Next week is Neil's week. So what will we discuss, Neil? We will be discussing The Modern Age by The Strokes, 2001, off their uh, initial EP. Can't wait! <laughs>